It's good to have you here. I, um, I got a few comments from people this morning. It's, it's very rainy, and I, I think the uh, emotional, you know, tenor of the room is down, and so I'll try to bring it up. Last week, I was preaching, and even I got depressed at the end of my sermon, so this week, I've tried to create a uh, uplifting series, but we're in the book of Jeremiah, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it, that's okay. Uh, it's not the most uplifting book at all times, so I purposely tried to craft this sermon and in a way that will make you and me happy. And I failed. So we're going to go at it, and instead I will do what, you know, say what the text says. So I'm trying my best, but I'm really enjoying this uh, series in Jeremiah. So I just, for those of you who are new or missed these past weeks, you can always catch up online, but I'll catch you up on where we've been. We've, we've got, we're in week three of an eight-week series when we're looking at the prophetic book, the major prophet, as he is called, Jeremiah. Uh, He has 52 chapters, and in fact, Jeremiah, if you count Hebrew words, is the longest book in the entire Bible. Uh, It's a daunting book, and there's perhaps no other book in the Bible that is so full of judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. The negative and the positive. So it's like this roller coaster uh, ride of emotions. And what we've seen in these first couple weeks, and it's 52 weeks, we're doing it in eight weeks. I'm obviously not preaching each chapter. We're skipping around. In week one, we looked at chapter one, and we looked at Jeremiah's call. And in week one, we saw two core concepts that kind of set the groundwork for the entire book of Jeremiah, and really your understanding of prophecy in general. And the two concepts are this. First, God's protection. God's protection. I think a lot of us go through life, and we expect certain things from our vision of who God is and how he will interact with us. But in week one, we saw that God's protection on our life does not mean that no harm comes to us, but rather that God's plan will be accomplished and you get to be a part of it. Sometimes uh, it is great and everything feels good emotionally, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we go through really hard things in life. God's plan will be accomplished, and you get to be a part of it, his protection. Second, we looked at what does his judgment mean, kind of a definition of God's judgment according to Jeremiah. And what we saw in week one was that God's judgment means that he destroys what destroys us, and he builds up what benefits us. He destroys what destroys us, and he builds up what benefits us. Now tell that to someone going through judgment, and that's not an easy thing, yes? But that is what God is doing in life. He is destroying what destroys us, and he is building up what benefits us. And if it doesn't always feel like that to you, you are not alone, because it doesn't always feel like that to a lot of us. Week two, we moved on, and we skipped a bunch of chapters, and we went right to chapter seven, and we looked at what's called Jeremiah's temple sermon. Jeremiah decides, and I'm glad that nobody's ever done this to me on a Sunday morning, but Jeremiah decides that he is going to be like the anti-greeter at church. Instead of saying, we're glad you're here, he stood outside of the temple and he told the people as they were entering the church, not the unchurched people or the untemple people, but the temple people, you are bad, repent, which is not the best greeting in the world, is it? But what Jeremiah was trying to talk about and address, uninvitedly so, was the religious hypocrisy that was going on in the nation of Judah. And he says, Jeremiah, that the only way for us to break religious hypocrisy in our lives, and in this moment, uh, and in last week, we spoke mainly to those who claim to be Christ followers, who already follow Jesus. And the way to break religious hypocrisy 
in our lives is to allow our hearts to become softened so that it breaks over what breaks God's heart. And there is a huge difference between that and simply just adjusting your behavior. Last week, we looked at the idea, what if there was a husband? And this husband uh, cheated on his wife, and he came home, and the wife's unhappy, and he says to the wife, you know, I, I get you don't like that. I don't see that it's really a big deal, but for the rest of my life, I won't do that. That husband may behave your modify. He may change his behavior, but I would suggest that relationship will not be intimate or very positive. If we want to break the hold that religious hypocrisy has in our churches and in our individual lives, we must be able to have our hearts soften so that our heart breaks at what breaks God's heart. And what breaks his heart? When we mistreat his children, when we mistreat his people, and his people is everybody. That's Jeremiah's message. This week, we skip even more chapters, and we find ourselves in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 23. If you want to follow along, and I'd suggest you do, we make it real easy. There's a Bible right in front of you, uh, the blue book in front of you, and uh, the passage that we'll be looking at this morning is found in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 23, found on page 631. And as you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of time, and as you turn there, I want, to, I want to preface what we're about to read with a few comments. The text we are going to look at this morning is going to teach us something kind of mysterious, but very, very important about the interplay between God and us, or more, more uh, specifically, the interplay between God's actions and our actions, we could maybe say it, our actions and God's response, but I would say what Jeremiah 18 is about to teach us is that there is an interplay between our actions and God's actions. And if we understand this interplay, it will help us understand who God is. Now, this is something that people have struggled with for years, you know, and there's even movies about this. There was that movie a couple years ago. I think it had Matt Damon. It was called The Adjustment Bureau, kind of this fatalistic idea of if everything is predetermined in life, how do my choices determine anything? You know, how, how does free will function? This is something that people have struggled with for years, and I really can't resolve this tension. And the reason that it's been talked about for thousands and thousands of years is because nobody really has the full answer. Um, Every so often, it's good as, as the pastor to remind you that all of us, some of us are smarter than others. I don't know where I am on that scale. I wonder sometimes. But some of us are smarter than others. That, that can't be denied. Albert Einstein, E equals MC squared. He knew more than me. Yeah. We're all on a scale of what we understand and know about this world. Some of us are smarter than others. But there are some things that no matter how smart we are, we do not understand about God. And so wherever we are, I guess all of us are dealing with an incomplete understanding of who God is and how he works. Now on this issue, and I, I put a lot of work into the sermon and I was trying to create ways to make this easier to understand, but there are times, I think, when we come to the text of Scripture and what we are looking at is really beyond our understanding but there are certain elements that we can pick out of this text that we can understand. And this text is going to deal with the interplay between free will and God's actions. Or our actions, God's actions. It's a mysterious subject. And I, 
I don't, uh, I can't explain it fully, but I know that there are many people, and I've talked to them, I have been in this situation, there are many times in life, and if it hasn't happened to you, it, it will one day, uh, where you will have something happen, and you will say, why does life look like this? Why does life look like this? It's not when you buy your first car, or you meet your girlfriend, and she's the best thing ever in the whole world. It's not when the good times come, is it? It's during times of disappointment, discouragement, and disillusionment that we ask, why does life look like this? For us, I would say we've lived a pretty good life, but even so, we've had times of discouragement, disillusionment, and disappointment. Um, Right before our second was born, before our second was born, Sarah and I went through something really hard, something that I don't think we expected how hard it would be. We went through a miscarriage, and we were so excited, um, I think, at the, uh, the potential of this new life, um, and within weeks, that new life was gone. And nobody even knew hardly that we were pregnant, and so you don't know who to talk with. And, uh, and that's when we ask, why does life look like this? Not when you go to work and say, they say, hey, your work is awesome. Here's a $5,000 raise, you know? Or when you win the publishing clearinghouse, you know? That's the way life should look, yeah? Or we have that idea in our mind, don't we, that if I'm sort of a good person, life should just flow smoothly. But during times of disappointment, discouragement, and disillusionment, we're all different on the scale which discouragements, disillusionments, and disappointments send us into orbit. You may look at some person, you might think that sent you into orbit, you know? But when they send us into orbit, Something happens and we ask, why does life look this way? During these times when we ask this question, I want to preface by saying that that moment is a moment of great danger in our lives. That is a moment of great danger. The danger, and it is so common, is that we would misunderstand who God is and how he acts. Or we could simplify and say how, what God's desire looks like. And we could start a pattern or begin to make stupid and self-destructive choices. Stupid and self-destructive choices. And so this morning, as we come to Jeremiah chapter 18, we come to a, uh, a, a, an account in the book of Jeremiah that, if you study Jeremiah often, is one of his most famous sections of Scripture. In fact, it is a unique uh, text of Scripture. Now, I know that there's not a lot of people that are real familiar with the book of Jeremiah, and that's okay. I'm not even that familiar with it. But this account does something that's extremely unique. It causes certain problems for us, and I'll try to raise those and, uh, and show you that I can't answer them, which is kind of unique for a pastor to do. And then I will take you to a place where you can see exactly what Jeremiah, I think, is saying. There's a lot in this text that I don't understand, and so I'm going to focus on that, which I do. But I'll be honest enough to show you the parts I don't. All right? Jeremiah chapter 18, I've said a lot of words, and I've prefaced it with a lot of language. So let's see what it says. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 23. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot that he was shaping from the clay was marred. 
in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. Now, if at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent, and I will not inflict on it the disaster that I had planned. And if at any other time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will not reconsider the good I intended to do for it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you, so turn from your evil ways. Each one of you, And reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it is of no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our own evil hearts. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations, and who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Do its cool waters from distant sources ever stop flowing? Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways in the ancient paths. They made them walk in byways on roads that were not built up. Their land will be an object of horror and of lasting scorn, and all who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their disaster. They said, come, let's make plans against Jeremiah for the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise, nor the words from the prophets. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. Here, I... I shouldn't do this, but here in verse 18, I don't want you to miss what's going on. They said, there's a preacher. We don't like what he says. Let's kill him. The prophetic word will not cease, but we like it from this source a little better. You see, that's what 18 tells us. Listen to me, Lord. Hear what my accusers are saying. Should good be repaid with evil, yet they have dug a pit for me. In this instance, this is literal. Remember that I stood before you and spoke in their behalf to turn your wrath away from them. So give their children over to famine, hand them over to the power of the sword, let their wives be made childless and widows, let their men be put to death, their young slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when suddenly bring invade when you suddenly bring invaders against them. For they have dug a pit to capture me and have hidden snares for my feet, but you, Lord, know all their plots to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes. Or blot out their sins from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. All right. There's the word of the Lord. I should have planned a three-week series on the book of Jeremiah. But let's go ahead and look at what this says. What is this saying? And it says this text is unique and it's very famous because it is an account of Jeremiah at the potter's house. And he goes to a literal potter's house, and he sees the potter shape the wheel, and he sees the potter um, have clay. And in the hand of the potter, the clay is marred. The property or the nature of the clay is not what it should be. And uh, the potter reshapes it. 
And out of this real life event, uh, God speaks the word of the Lord to Jeremiah and he wants to teach him a lesson. He wants to teach him a lesson through an analogy. And the lesson through analogy is this. God is the potter and humanity is the clay. God is the potter and humanity is the clay. Now, there are some unique challenges with this analogy. And I want to bring this to light, and then I want to help you to see that this is not what God is saying. Now, here are the problems. There are three of them. First, if God is the potter, why is the clay marred? We may take this analogy too far. If we say, if God is the potter, why is the clay marred? We see it in verse 4, the, the clay is marred. But if God is the potter, and he does everything perfect and right, then why would the clay be marred? This text, although if you took it too far, might seem to be teaching that God's work is not perfect. But that is not what this text is saying. But it is a problem. The second problem that we have is if God is the potter, then how can we be free? If God is the potter and he shapes the pot however he likes, then how can we truly be free? And yet, we all kind of know we are, right? We make free will decisions all of the time. Perhaps there's a dynamic interplay that we don't understand. I would suggest there is. But yet, we are certainly, in a real sense, free. And so God is shaping the pot, but yet, somehow the clay still plays a role. Third, Problem number three, if God is the potter, why does the clay seem to be in charge, right? We see in verse 7 through 10, and I'm going to focus in on those in just a second, but according to the analogy or the illustration, God says, if I say bad will come and you repent, then I will relent. And if you, I say good will come and you do bad, it'll come. Bad will come. And so, if God is the potter and he is the one in control, why does the property of the clay dictate the response of the potter? Problem number three. But this text is not teaching that God is not in control. What we have to understand is that analogies inherently are difficult. Let me talk with you about that for a second. Um, We try to teach our kids things all the time, don't we? And we often use analogies. And sometimes in the church world, we use analogies to help make things simple. Um, I I cleared this one with my wife, and this is a really bad illustration. But, you know, when my kids were young, uh, Walton was young, and, you know, Harrison had just come into this world, and Walton was asking about breastfeeding, yeah? And you start to think about how do you make an analogy that a kid can help understand about breastfeeding. So, you know, mommy is the food and, you know, it's kind of like a, you see what I mean? An animal who, a cow or, you know, and my wife heard that and she's like, that is not cool, you know? (laughs) You know, analogies break down at some point. Yes, mommy is giving nourishment, but no, she is not like a cow, you see? So, Almost every analogy is like this, and I I really wrecked my brain because I didn't want to use that breastfeeding analogy. I wanted something better, but I don't know. I was just having like preacher's block or something. But you get the picture. Analogies always break down. All I could think of when I was coming up with analogies is all the analogies about the Trinity, and I I won't talk about that. I'd be tempted to, but I'm going to resist that temptation, okay? But analogies break down. But when you look at the analogy, there is always a point of truth. The point of truth comes from the teller of the analogy, 
And the teller of the analogy would not appreciate if you tried to take it to the nth degree. And here is the point of this analogy. It is very, very, very simple. It is not teaching those other three problems. It is teaching one important principle that God, our response to God shapes us. Our response to God shapes us. In fact, that is the nature of the potter and the clay. In fact, if you look back at the text with me, it's, it's very fascinating to me. Uh, verses 3 and 4, he goes, uh, he goes to the potter's house, Jeremiah, and the potter picks up some clay and starts to shape it into a pot, but the clay is marred. And you might ask yourself, didn't the potter know that the clay was marred? It's almost as if the way the text, and I, I read different commentaries, multiple ones this week, that, that brought out this idea. It's almost like, and I've never done pottery. I don't know if there's anybody who did pottery. Maybe you were looking for an easy grade in college. But, uh, oh, that's basket weaving. Yes. <laughs> None of which would seem like it'd be easy to me. And my, my college didn't offer either. So that's why I don't know about this stuff. But um, from what I read, and I, tr- I scoured the internet to find as much as I could on this and found less than I would like. But from what I did find, it was almost like the people who are potters there is this dynamic with the clay, and they almost talked about the clay as if the clay was like a living thing that you just don't know about, what it's going to be like. There's no way to know, but it's, it's alive, and as they shape it, even if they're really experienced, the clay has property and nature of its own that the, the, the potter has to deal with as he shapes it. That doesn't make any sense to me, and probably there'll be some potters and say to me, that doesn't make any sense to me either, and then I'll feel really bad. But that's what I read, and I didn't find as much as I'd like. But I do know from um, studying in high school a little bit, we, we had this whole thing on, uh, we read a book, and we studied a lot about Frank Lloyd Wright, who was an architect. And Frank Lloyd Wright, his whole theory of architecture was, you've got a piece of property, and the architecture uh, should flow out of that property. So like, He's the one that uh, constructed falling water. And so he built the house, not just here's the house that will be good for every piece of property. Here, I'm going to stick it on this piece of land. He built falling water to shape it around that piece of land. And that's why that cool waterfall runs through it. To the best of my knowledge, as I tried to study this, this seems to be the kind of dynamic that is going on between the potter and the clay. As if the clay has natures independent of his own that the potter is working with as he shapes it, the nature of the clay. Now, what makes this passage unique in in the core element that we're going to look at this morning is really found for us in verses 7 through 10. There's no other passage in all of the Bible that is like this. And in fact, this to me is a critical passage for understanding the message of the Bible as a whole. For you see in verses 7 through 10 that Jeremiah teaches us not just something about the potter and the clay and how God shapes us, but he teaches us something about his word and who he is and how he works prophetically. He says, verse 7, If any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents, then I will relent from the evil I was going to do. So if that nation who has done evil repents of their evil, God will relent of the judgment that he is going to bring. But if any time God says good is going to happen to somebody and 
they start to do evil, God will allow evil or bring evil onto them. Because our response to God shapes us. Not his word certainly shapes us. But what Jeremiah is saying is he is saying that God's interactions with humanity is a dynamic interplay that is mysterious and that none of us understand fully, but that our evil, and in fact, what we know from reality is the evil of others, shape the world around us. I could take you to sections, and I find this stuff terribly interesting, which is, I guess, why I went into the field I did. But I could take you to all kinds of prophecy, and I think the general thought, what is prophecy? It is a statement of the future, but that is not primarily true. Prophecy in the Bible, its primary function is not to tell us what will happen, but to cause us, to mold us, and to cause us to repent and turn towards God, which is why the very thing that God says here in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10, we see worked out in the pages of Scripture. In Jonah chapter 3, there's a famous story. Jonah is the prophet sent to Nineveh, an ancient, uh, the capital city of the ancient Assyrian Empire, who was a very evil, evil nation. And he is sent to them to declare, in 40 days, God will destroy you. And we are told that uh, Jonah went the exact opposite way of Nineveh. He went towards Tarshish. And he does this because he does not want to deliver the prophecy that God will destroy Nineveh. Why does he not want to do this? Because Jonah does not want the Ninevites, the Assyrians, to have a word from God, a prophecy, and to repent of their evil and to have God spare them from the evil that he wants. We find this all out in chapter 4. God, after God repents of the evil, or relents, we should say relents of the evil that he was going to do, Jonah goes into a state of depression, for he wanted Assyria to be wiped out. A lot of scholars think that Jonah's parents probably were killed by the Assyrians, and he has a personal vendetta or feeling against them. But what Jonah understood was what Jeremiah 18 is teaching, that if we repent, God wants to relent. But the same is also true. I could take you to a passage 1 Samuel 2, verse 30, where God has told the priest, Eli, that he will establish his uh, priesthood forever. But you know what? Eli had some really, really, really misbehaving children, really bad ones. Um, Pastor's kids often get a bad rep of being misbehaving. My kids are perfect, thank you very much. But... uh, and they have great hair. I always have to point that out. But um, they do. And these priest kids were really bad. And by really bad, we mean eating, you know, like people would come and they'd bring sacrifices that were supposed to be burnt up. They would take them off the altar and eat them. So that seems kind of sacrilegious. And they slept with the women who would come to worship. Okay? So this isn't like gray area. It's not um, they danced every so often, you see? Or they played cards. They slept with women in a loose way who were supposed to be worshiping, and they dishonored the altar by eating the food they are not supposed to eat, taking the choice pieces that belong to God. Big deal. 
And God said, I will establish Eli your house forever, 1 Samuel 2.30. No, not if you act like that. We're done here. And he is. And and Eli's uh, sons are killed in battle, and his line eventually dies out. Because there is a dynamic interplay between the way God interacts with us, between God's actions and our actions. How that interplay works out is confusing. But what I do know is that God shapes us by our responses to him. Our response to God shapes us. And it's funny in life. And we see it here. It's, uh, it's actually explicit in our text, and I'll show it to you. We see in our text that when we hear from God at times, there are times in our life where we have heard from him, and we say, I'm too far. I'm just going to continue on this path. And there are other times in our life where God says it's too far and we're too late. Now, here's what we see in our text, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, say to the people of Judah living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Now look at what the people's response is in verse 12. But they will reply, it is of no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. That's weird, isn't it? There is time. You have not gone too far. And you know what? The only time you've ever gone too far is when you shaped your heart by your evil to the point where you say, it is of no use. I will continue in the stubbornness of my evil heart. For really, the only time it is too far is when you say it's too far. But notice what they say. They say, yes, I have done evil. I will continue to do evil. For, you know, I've already made enough bad choices, and if I make a good one now, it's not going to undo the bad. But that's not what God says. He says it's never too late unless you, by your evil, have shaped yourself to the point where you are not willing to change and you are not willing to repent. Because our response shapes us. In verses 13 through 15, we then, and I'll I'll do this part briefly because I want want to close this sermon out in a second and tell you what, what I believe God wants for all of us to hear this morning. But we see in verses 13 through 15 the actual sin that Jeremiah's audience had engaged in. And at first, it's kind of told in the, uh, an opposite way. 13 does not tell us the sin. 15 does, and 14 gives us an analogy. But look at it with me. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations who has heard anything like this. A horrible thing has been done in, in Israel. He's saying, the sin that the people of Judah has committed is unlike anything any of the nations have done. Now, what is it that is unlike? Verse 15 is what tells us the answer. My people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods or worthless idols, which made them stumble in ancient paths. They made them walk in byways and in roads that are not built up. And so what the prophet is saying 
is that this sin is unique. He's saying, even amongst the nations who worship false gods, they stay faithful to those gods. But yet you, who have the true God and have been vindicated, have seen true wonders and miracles of what God's protection and deliverance have happened in your life, are turning away from the true God to follow after worthless idols. Not even the other nations turn away from their false gods. And so Jeremiah says, that is your sin. That is what you must repent of. But their evil continues to shape them. And it shapes them to the point, and we saw it in verse 18 and then following, that they even want to wipe out anyone who tells them the truth. Anyone who is willing to say, your evil is what is shaping you, repent, they would rather listen to voices that say, you are good, you are fine, God will bless you, and continue in their evil ways. And Jeremiah, in verses 19 through 23, when I kind of said it's depressing, he delivers a prayer of, uh, it's called an imprecatory prayer, a prayer of cursing. But I don't think his heart is a heart of hatred, but a heart of uh, restoration. His desire in cursing is to show the people that the destination of evil is destruction. The most dangerous thing that can happen to any of us is to be lulled into a false sense of security. When we do something that is wrong, and let's, let's stay out of the gray areas. Let's say you've done something that you know is wrong, and you in your heart feel bad about it at the time you do it. I'm not even going to define what that is for you. And have you ever done something like that and you seemingly got away with it? That is a place of great, great danger. And so Jeremiah, I think, is praying these prayers of imprecation or cursing because when we do evil, it shapes us into evil. And God's judgment is the way that he is trying to destroy what destroys up and build up what benefits us. God shapes us dependent on our response on him. And how that works in with his sovereignty and his free will, you can discuss that in your small groups. And that's a discussion that'll be fun and it'll probably take longer than is beneficial because there's not an answer to that question. Not one that we understand. But when we look at Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10, we cannot help but come to the conclusion that our actions are shaping who we are. And our actions and are shaping the nature. And we, let, let's go with the analogy for a second of the clay. And the clay is what God is working with to shape us. And so what is God's desire? What is God's desire when he thinks of like, your life. He's not like some um, puppet master up, 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 up there who is just bringing cruel and arbitrary things into your life. Do you know, if you've read much of Greek mythology or any of the other ancient gods and faith systems, that's almost always what it's like. But Jeremiah says that's not what God is like. He says, God wants to shape you into something. And you are shaping yourself, the clay, into what he is able to shape into. He is never past the point of being able to shape you into something useful and beautiful. But your 
actions mysteriously are a part of that process. But this morning, what I want to tell you, and I've got just a few takeaways that I want, I want to close with as we transition to communion in just a moment. I want you to hear something that is really obvious, but for some reason, so many people miss it. And that is that God's desire is to shape you into something extraordinary. His, his desire is to shape you into something extraordinary. His desire is not to destroy, to hurt, to cause you pain. His desire is to shape you into something extraordinary. And he longs for the brokenhearted repentance of his people because he longs to shape them into something extraordinary. And we can make decisions that shape us that change the nature of the clay that God is working with. But what I want you to realize is that God's desire is to shape you into something extraordinary. And I've got three takeaways uh, that I want you to see. First, this text holds out hope. I was, uh, I was reading it with my wife last night. <laughs> and I always do this. I try to get some, some uh, you know, is there something you're seeing that I'm not seeing that I can work, you know, use? And um, she said, this text seems incredibly hopeful. And it is. Because it is never too late, according to Jeremiah 18, for you to repent and to start to undo the evil that is shaping your life. It is never too late to change. None of our past failures make us unusable. Our failures do not need us. Need Our past failures do not need us need to keep us from looking the way God wants to make us look. It doesn't. That's the message of Jeremiah 18. Our past failures need not make us unusable or unable to look the way that God wants us to look. The second thing I want you to see is that while this text is full of hope, it is also full of a warning. Because if you persist in the evil you are committing, evil will shape you. If you allow disappointment, discouragement, and disillusionment to take you down a very normal, common pathway, the pathway of asking, why does my life look like this, and therefore God must not be good, therefore if it doesn't matter, I will commit evil, will take you down a pathway of which there's no return if you're not willing to walk the other way. You could always walk the other way, but if you get to a place where you say, I will not, then you won't. It's like, and here's just a few silly illustrations on it, but they're so true. Um, You know, it's like, the young man, and he gets into this relationship with this girl, and he's got this history of having bad relationships, but this time, he's going to do it right, and so he's a perfect gentleman in his relationship, right? And he does everything the right way, and uh, the girl breaks up with him, and he says, he says to himself, you know what? When I did it right, it didn't work out for me, so now I'm just going to get into a bunch of unhealthy relationships that bring me temporary pleasure. Bad idea, Right? Because I was unhealthy, this time I did something healthy, and now it didn't work out, so now I'm going to go back to unhealthy, you know? It'd be like the guy who's trying to lose weight and says, all right, I'm going to eat broccoli this whole week, 
you know, one stalk. And after that week, he doesn't lose any weight. And afterwards, he's like, broccoli doesn't help, so I'm done with greens. Yeah? If healthy behavior does not bring the, resp- the, uh, the result that you want in the time frame you thought it should, the answer is not unhealthy behavior. And the warning in this text is your unhealthy behavior shapes you. And I've used a lot of strong language, haven't I? I haven't used mistake. I even haven't used sin. I've said evil. Because the evil that we commit begins to shape us. This is why the ends and the means are the same thing. You see? You might think, I'm going to do something bad so a good thing will be accomplished. But in the idea of doing something bad, you are being shaped and becoming the means. You see? Doesn't work. This text holds hope. This text holds a warning. This text challenges us to do something. And this is my last and final takeaway, and we'll go to communion. This text challenges us to, and we need to do this, and I want to challenge you to meditate on this as we take communion together. This this text challenges us to think about the picture of what does the extraordinary life look like here and then forever. This text challenges us to think carefully through what does it look like to have God be shaping us? What does that look like? What does it look like here? And what does it look like forever? What I would say to you is, and the prophet Jeremiah is the best illustration perhaps in the entire Bible of this. Another good one would be Jesus. When we do God's will, we are not guaranteed Cloud cuckoo land in the Lego movie. Everything is awesome. Jeremiah does God's will. Did you see in the text at the end of verse 18? People want to kill him and throw him in a pit. Jesus did God's will completely. They crucified him on a cross. What does God's extraordinary will look like? And it takes us back to protection. God's ultimate plan will be accomplished and you get to be a part of it. In the here, it's hard sometimes. I do not pray for hard. In fact, when I pray for all of you, when things happen, I pray for the not hard stuff. I do. When I hear that somebody's gone through a miscarriage or someone has a brain tumor, I do not pray. Good, that's awesome for them. Now God will will be able to shape them. I pray, God, take away the tumor. Help the baby be healed. I don't know why he doesn't answer those prayers sometimes but I know he doesn't always. There's a point in our faith where we have to become like adults and look at things square in the eyes and say, it is the way that it is. But we have a choice in this moment. And we can say, God has abandoned me, so now I will go unhealthy. I'll start to get in a bunch of bad, destructive, romantic relationships, and I'm never eating broccoli again. I'm just going to eat McDonald's. Or we can look it straight in the face and say, I don't understand, which is not humiliating because nobody does, not even us pastors. We don't know how God is shaping. But when we follow him, he can shape us into something in the here and now that is extraordinary. And the extraordinary sometimes hurts. But the extraordinary that God promises is coming will be glory forevermore. And so we take that by faith. 
But faith is a hope word, isn't it? We take that by faith. But if it was already present, we wouldn't have to have faith. But it is present. And so we must continue in faith. But before you allow your discouragement, disillusionment, and disappointment to lead you down a road that will destroy you, think about both paths. Think about the fork. And ask yourself, how does God want to shape me? And what will that look like in my day-to-day actions? Let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you'd work in our hearts and your minds to transform us and make us look more like Christ. We are so grateful for the work that you are doing in our lives. And even when it's hard to see how you are engaging and how you are working, we pray that you would open our eyes to see what you are doing, that you would uh, transform us and that you'd help us to become more and more like Christ. It's in whose name we pray. Amen.